Good morning. Hi, Elias. How are you doing this morning? Some of you heard that. Hi, Daddy. He's doing good, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> hey, so, uh, boy, we're glad you're here today. My name is Pastor Milo. If you're a guest with us today, thank you for taking the day and coming with us and being here with us on Christmas morning. Uh, we know it was going to be a smaller crowd, and so we tried to do some things that uh, made that connect uh, with you as well. Uh, some of the questions I want to be able to start with this morning, and if you're a guest with us, we've been in the book of Hebrews. And so if you've got a Bible, you can take that out, and, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 today uh, by way of Luke. So I just want to let you know there's going to be some turning back and forth, but you can put a thumb in Luke chapter 2 and then put a finger in Hebrews uh, chapter 2 because that's where we're going to be headed today. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. And parents who have kids here this morning, this is a great opportunity for you to help your kids make their way through the Bible and figure out where they are uh, in the Bible as well. And of course, if you're using your phone or your app, you can go to Version or something like that to find your way. So it's Christmas morning. Uh, most of you have opened your presents uh, wrapped by the chimney with care or somehow, uh, that, how that goes. Uh, but you've opened your presents. The Christmas tree now has no use. And so most of you will take it down this afternoon. Uh, well, there's some of you who will do that. Like, I, I know that I'm kind of joking, but there are a few in this room that you put up the Christmas tree Thanksgiving Day during the football game, and then Christmas Day at the afternoon, that Christmas tree comes down. So what is the correct protocol as to when you're supposed to take your tree down? Some people put it up, as I said, Thanksgiving, and they take it down maybe uh, the first of the year. Others of you uh, didn't put up the Christmas tree until Christmas Eve, and then you'll take it down Christmas Day the way that my family always did it. Uh, we, we waited until Christmas, uh, excuse me, till New Year's Day, and then the tree came down, which is actually kind of backwards the way the tradition is supposed to work. Uh, we see here uh, the Christmas decorations go up in the stores, you know, right after Halloween or, or August. I mean, it seems like like the, the decorations are there, they're ready for it. And so by the time December 26 comes around, we're kind of, you know, we've had our Christmas songs and we've had our time and we haven't really thought through uh, exactly how we're going to do this, but we're, we're done. Uh, we're done with the Christmas season. And I hate to say that Christmas morning because I'm not trying to, to be a downer on you, but like that's really kind of the way that people will approach this. But really what happens is excitement builds up and the climax is December the 25th. We celebrate and then we don't know what to do after that. You know, actually that song that has been done a thousand different ways when I was in the military, we did uh, the 12 days of boot camp rather than the 12 days of uh, Christmas. And so you had your first day, you got your drill instructor, and the second day you got your M16, and there's a whole, you know, song that goes with that. And, uh, but the Christmas songs, the 12 days of Christmas is actually what is uh, the tradition for the, for the Christian church, and it's actually the 12 days following Christmas, not even the 12 days preceding. In my family, we kind of end up doing something like the 12 days preceding. But really, it's designed to be the 12 days following Christmas, and then January the 6th, then you can take your Christmas tree down. And what is the reason for that? Why would we do that? Well, because the season of Advent begins four Sundays before Christmas, and it's talking about and helping us celebrate the coming King. That's what these candles have been about that we've been lighting over the last uh, four weeks of this coming King. And now Jesus is here. And so the idea of having the 12 days of Christmas is prolonging that celebration that Jesus is here. I said last night, some of you were here, I had a professor in college who would walk around the campus, it was a Christian college, he would walk around the campus every day of the year and greet everyone by saying Merry Christmas. 
Uh, he would just shake people's hands and say, Merry Christmas. Glad you're, you know, in youth ministry 101. Merry Christmas, you know. And, and it just seemed strange to do it. But now I kind of see what he was trying to do was normalize Christmas or make it more, like, help us realize that it needs to have an effect on us all year long. He is trying to talk about the normal days of Christianity. You know, Jesus was a normal person. Uh, he had normal days as well. Jesus, did he have to be potty trained? Yes, he had to be potty trained. Did Jesus have to take tests in school? And, and yes, yes he did. And he had trouble with some classes and he did better in other classes. And he may have been picked last for gym class and he had to come home and tell his mom about it. And they had to work through some of those things. Jesus was very much a little boy. Did Jesus have to do chores? Yes. So some of you had this mindset, and the Rich Bart family, there you are, uh, big Disney fans, that maybe, maybe it's like Mickey Mouse with Fantasia. You know, like that was Jesus, like mom told him you need to go clean your room, and Jesus is upstairs like, and things are flying around, and like, Jesus was a man, he was a little boy who had responsibilities, who lived in this earth the same as you and the same as me. Did he need parents? Yes, he did. And that's where we're actually going to talk about today. Luke chapter 2, we see the childhood, the early childhood of Jesus' life. Uh, we're completely silent in all scripture except for this one account in Luke chapter 2. And um, it's not just 12 days after Christmas, but it's actually 12 years after Christmas. So Jesus is a 12-year-old boy. But the big point, the main idea that I'm trying to get across this morning, and I'm going to repeat it a few times so that you get it, is Jesus. He is greater than just Christmas Day. Jesus is greater than Christmas Day. Beginning in verse 41 of Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, it says this. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to to the custom. Now, if some of you are familiar with Jewish tradition, there's something called the bar mitzvah. That happens when a boy is 13. But this is part of the process of him going every year, growing into it. He would actually be welcomed in and be able to go to these major feasts and festivals. He would begin to learn the process of what it meant to worship as a Jew. This is kind of a rite of passage. And the next year was going to be his bar mitzvah. The becoming of a man uh, would be that process. Verse 43. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Now this bothers some people. Some of you are looking at this passage and now what's the matter with these parents? They've traveled far away from the city and they don't know where Jesus is. They don't know what is going on. I, I'll give you a few examples. I grew up in the church and I have been left at the church a number of times. Dad would think I was in mom's car. Mom would think I was in dad's car. I make eye contact, so I have to say it. The Tysons love to leave kids here at the church. It's just, <laughs> last night we did it, right? Yeah, Christmas Eve service. It was like a home alone moment. There was one of the Tysons is running around the church. Where's my family, right? Yeah, all right. <laughs> so they left them there. But the difference is it wasn't like, oh, Mary is such a bad 
uh, guardian or caretaker. No, the, the point was they would travel together in caravans to come to these festivals. They would travel in company of friends, and they would come to Nazareth, and there would be, uh, it would not be uncommon that they would assume that, the, that he was playing with the other boys or he's in a different part of the caravan, and when they would stop and check in on him, they would see. They just suspected that he was playing. And then when they got back home, he would be with them. It was very, very common. It was the kind of trust that they had in the people that they traveled in. That was the type of community they lived in. They said, it's okay. Uh, he's with good people and he'll be there. But they didn't realize he wasn't with them. Verse 44, thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, let's stop there for a moment. After three days, so just to kind of, again, put that in perspective. It was probably a day's journey by foot. So they've gotten a day away. They're probably 10 to 20 miles out. It's going to take them a day to return. They're coming back to the city. And so now they're actually going to spend a day looking for him. It wasn't that they got three days away before they realized that he was missing. It took about a day out, a day back, and now they've spent the day looking for him. So there's the three days. <coughs> Excuse me. That's how you account for it. They probably got down near the Dead Sea, around Jericho, that area, and then they realized that he's not with them, and they turned back uh, to the city. Verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed by his understanding and his answers. Everyone who heard him, not just his friends that were there with him, but the teachers and the religious rulers of the day. And anyone who was passing by, they see this 12-year-old boy. And this, there's something special about him. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Not because they saw him, but the, because of how he's interacting. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Verse 49, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. They went down to Nazareth with them and he was obedient to them. But his mother, she treasured these things. She accounted for these things. She marked them down, all of these things in her heart. Verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. At the age of 12, he understands his divine calling from God the Father in heaven. He understands what he is, therefore what he is supposed to do, what his life goal is. He understands that at the age of 12. And actually, there won't be anything else said about his childhood or his upbringing or what was going to happen with him for another 18 years before we check in with Jesus and John the Baptist when he begins his ministry. When we see Jesus in the temple with those leaders, it was very common for them to be there teaching and, and, and helping these young boys come along. That was their job. They were teachers. They were rabbis. They were going to bring him along. But what was uncanny about this particular situation was that he was dialoguing with them as someone who knew the scriptures. He was not coming in as a disciple. He was coming in as an equal. It seemed very out of the ordinary. What a beautiful picture it really is. The God of the universe, greater than all existence, and he says, you know what, let me sit down and let you teach me a few things today. The irony of that, the idea that the God of the universe who knows how everything was put together and why it was put together, who was there and when and how and all of that, he allows man to teach him and allows man to uh, bring him along and instruct him and disciple him. It's a beautiful picture. 
because we don't have any other record of his childhood, uh, we're going to look over now to Hebrews to be able to talk about how uh, Hebrews and the author there deals with this. We have a few pictures in our life that uh, are very important to us. You realize now on a time, if you only had one picture taken of you in your entire life, which is the way that it used to be, you know, where the, the guy would come up and he had the little flame on a stick and all that and like, and here's your family picture. That's it. You would treasure that significantly. And so uh, if, if you walk around your house, maybe you're the type of family where you change out those pictures all the time. There's all these different pictures and you're always moving, always changing. Because we can. We can snap a picture. You took 100 pictures this morning. We do that. There's a few pictures that you have, whether it's of your wedding day or whether it's of the baby, the moment that that baby was born, or just a special moment that you have as a family. There's a few snapshots that are incredibly important to you and to your family. And what we see here this morning, I want to give you four snapshots or four pictures that we see in Hebrews, really of who Jesus is and how that connects back to the bigger picture. So you turn over there now, Hebrews chapter Two, make your way to the right, Hebrews chapter 2. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but he's writing or she is writing to a very specific audience, a Jewish audience, someone who understands the background of this Jesus the Messiah who was supposed to come and rescue his people. And so that's the background, the context of what's going on there. But they're undergoing intense persecution. And it would be easier for them to step away and go back to their Jewish traditions than it would be for them to continue on in following Christ. And so what the author does here is gives them if the, the big picture. says, here's, here's four snapshots that I want you to see that ought to be important to you. Beginning in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus who is made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The first snapshot I want you to see is Jesus is a king who got involved. Jesus. He is a king who got involved. Jesus says he was lowered, a little lower than the angels. Now he's crowned in glory and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. But during this time when he was walking the earth, when he was born in the stable, when he was here with us, he was lowered, to, lowered his, as the king, he lowered himself so that he could get involved. There are many who think that God created the earth, spun it into motion and then just walked away. And we're now here to fend for ourselves. That's not the way that it is. He is a king who chose to be involved. Imagine you were in a courtroom and there was someone who was about to be sentenced for the crimes that they had committed. Uh, maybe it was robbery, maybe it was aggravated assault. I don't know what the crime was, but it's an open and shut case. It's clear the guy is guilty. There's no way that he's going to get away with it. And the judge hammers the gavel, <coughs> excuse me, hammers the gavel and says he is guilty as charged. And then he takes off his vestments, his robes, and sets them aside and comes down and walks around and stands there. And he says, but he's my son. And he puts the handcuffs on himself. We know that this doesn't happen in real life. We can't do that. But he puts the handcuffs on himself and he goes and serves the sentence that his son was guilty of. That's the picture that we see of a king getting involved, someone who is way above the situation that we are in, so far greater than anything that we can imagine, and yet he has chose to be involved, chose to engage and move into our neighborhoods, as we saw last night from John chapter 1. 
it's not a perfect analogy. I know that it doesn't work in our legal system necessarily, but it's essentially what has happened here. Jesus is the king who got involved. The second snapshot that you'll see is Jesus is a champion who saves. Jesus is a champion who saves. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says this, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through, for through whom everything exists, should be made the pioneer of their salvation, perfect through what he suffered. He is the pioneer of our salvation, it says here. That word can be translated, and some of your uh, translations might say uh, that he is the champion or the deliverer, the founder or the captain. Those are some words that are used there. Putting Jesus ahead. He is the one who is going to pioneer our salvation. And he picks up this language again in verse 14. Jump down to verse 14. Again, talking about his sons and daughters, the children. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those from their lives who are held in slavery by the fear of death. He is the champion. He was going to break the bondage of sin and of death. He was going to break the enemy, the devil. He was going to break him because he is greater and because he was able to be the champion who saves you and me. The best example that we can see this is in the old days when fights were settled oftentimes between two armies or two countries would be fight fought, excuse me, they battled out between sometimes just two individuals. The best example we see of this is in scripture of David versus Goliath. You had the two uh, enemies standing in the opposite sides of the valley and yet they were going to allow these two champions uh, to come out and fight and duel in the center of the battle. So you've got this little unassuming shepherd boy, right? A boy with a sling against a, a giant with a sword and an armor bearer and a helmet and he was going to, to knock him down. He was going to drive him through. This is the picture of Jesus who won the battle against the real Goliath, Satan. Well, we all stand on the sidelines and we all get to enjoy and celebrate. We didn't have to lift a finger to help him. We didn't have to do anything. Just like all of Israel stood there and watched David defeat their enemy, Goliath. Jesus, we watched him defeat our enemy, the devil. And we didn't lift a finger whatsoever. First, he's a king who got involved. Jesus is a champion who saves. And then thirdly, he's a brother who is not ashamed. He's a brother who is not ashamed. Beginning in verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Anyone who grew up with a sibling remembers what it was like to have your brother, have your sister embarrass you, right? Some of you had an older brother who was maybe a year ahead of you in school. And so as they were coming through, they were a troublemaker. And so now you had to follow through. And now, oh, you're, you're the Wilson boy, you know, one of, one of those Wilson boys. Like, no, I mean, I, but you're embarrassed by him. In, in my family, our daughter Maya, she's four, and she, she's the mayor. She wants to meet anyone and everyone in any situation, at any time, any place, anywhere. So she introduces herself to everyone at Wegmans. As we go in, she shakes hands with everyone. She introduces her family. This is my sister Hazel. This is Dahlia. She moves right down the line. That's just the way that she rolls. 
I'll tell you, it's cute for us, but the rest of the siblings are not always as excited to be introduced by their kid sister to the rest of the world. But it says here that Jesus, you know, you are the member of the family that Jesus should be embarrassed of. You are the member of the family. I am the member of the family that Jesus should be embarrassed of. We've done enough to make a mess of the family name, if you will. But yet Jesus, you know what he says? He proudly identifies with you and with me, and he claims you. And he claims me. He says, that's my brother. That's my sister. And he shouts it out in front of everyone. He says, that's my brother. That's my sister. In fact, in John chapter 20, Jesus said to Mary in the garden, go and tell my brothers that I have been raised from the dead. Go and tell my brothers. Now, these brothers that he's speaking of, they are the ones who had denied him the night before. They are the ones who had left him with the Roman guards in the garden and had fleed and had run away. One of them lost his clothes and just kept on running. These were his brothers. And he could have said, go tell those slack, cowardly, little, whatever word he would insert there, go tell them that I have raised from the dead even though I told them hundreds of times in advance that this is what was going to happen. Go tell them that it actually came to case. But no, that's not what he does. Instead, he uses this word brothers. He says, go tell my brothers that I have risen. He was not ashamed to own them. He was not ashamed to be connected to them. And he is not ashamed of you. Jesus was a king who got involved Jesus is a champion who saves. Jesus is the brother who is not ashamed. And Jesus is the priest who can help. Jesus is the priest who can help. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had been made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It helps us to know that when we are praying, we pray to a God who has felt everything that we ever feel. If you've gone through a difficult time in your life, if you've gone through the loss of a loved one, you understand that you are praying to a God who knows what it's like to lose a son. You are praying to Jesus. You are praying to someone who knows what it's like to fight the lure of temptation. For 40 days and 40 nights, he was out in the wilderness being tempted. He knows it firsthand. He knows what it's like to be tired and to be hungry. When you pray, he knows what it's like and he, to, to be weeping and to be sad and not to understand what God is up to. When we see him in John chapter 14, I believe it is, when he is at the grave of Lazarus and he is weeping before the grave, he says, God, why? is this happening? And he's also the only thing he can say is so that you may be glorified. He knew what it was like to be single at the age of 30 when the rest of his friends would have been married long before and have large families. And those of you who walk through that journey understand that Jesus knows what that is like. You are praying to someone who knew what it was like to be a 33-year-old single adult. He understands. He knew the disappointment of ministry when his disciples would just not seem to get it. They just wouldn't understand. He knew those disappointments. He understands that kind of failure. And he knows what it was like to be stabbed in the back 
by his closest and dearest companions. And sometimes just knowing that he knows that, knowing that he understands that firsthand allows us and helps us, as it says here, because he is our priest. Jesus, he is greater than Christmas. So what? He's greater than Christmas. As you acknowledge he is greater, it changes you. It changes me. He is greater than anything that we could ever come across all year long. It changes you. How could anyone who knows Jesus be racist? Jesus is greater than anyone and anything. So what that means, because that's really what racism is, it's an issue where we feel like, or this person feels like they are superior to the person next to them because of their skin color, or because of where they came from, or because of where they live currently. If you have an understanding that Jesus is greater than Christmas, you have an understanding that says we are all equally at the foot of the cross. How could anyone who knows Jesus exclude others and push others away when it is we who deserve to be excluded and yet Jesus included us and calls us brothers and sisters? That's the approach that Jesus has at a great personal cost to himself. It changes us. We should be the most forgiving community on the face of the earth. Because we understand and have learned what it means to put Jesus as greater than Christmas. He's greater than all of those things. And so that means that our, our community should see us and experience us. As Jesus washed his disciples' feet, why can't we go through our community and do things like that, that wash one another's feet? I was at a church and as a staff, what our lead pastor encouraged us to do, we would go through once a month and maybe every other month, we would have our staff meeting at a public restaurant usually Moe's or something like that. And then we would follow that up by washing. They would allow us to clean their restrooms afterwards. Because in a modern context, that may be the only thing we even have a slight understanding of what it would mean to wash someone's feet. And I'll tell you, Moe's is not a very clean place in the restroom at times. But that was what it was like to be able to do that, to be able to say, okay, we are going to be a people who love one another. We are be the most forgiving community on the earth. Some of you may be really struggling with this. At Christmas time, when families come together, there are some relationships that are strained and they are forced together, it feels like, at Christmas time. Yet, when we understand the forgiveness that Jesus has shown us and that He is greater than just Christmas Day, it changes how we address those relationships. It changes how we forgive because He is greater. We should be the most generous people on the earth. What Jesus did for you. And for me, is greater than any riches that we have. He emptied himself so that he could save you and save me. What do we do with our stuff? Can we empty ourselves so that we can save others, so that we can bring others along, so that we can help others? Are we so obsessed with our stuff? Or will we do it freely, not afraid of loss? Because we understand that Jesus, he is greater. I pray that this series challenges you. I pray that Christmas morning, I, I appreciate you being here. I pray that it changes how you see the rest of the year by just being able to say, you know what, I reset things here Christmas Day. I put Jesus 
in his proper place. He is greater than any of these other things. He is my champion. He is my king. He is my brother. He is my priest. And as the band comes up and we're going to close, we'll sing a final song and we'll be on our way and you'll be able to celebrate with your family today and I pray that you do. But I pray that you'll do it with things in their appropriate order, in their appropriate place. We'll be singing a song that you know and know too well, probably. It's called Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her what? Her king. Do we have that in its appropriate order? He rules the world with truth and grace. And makes the nations prove the glories of his love. Really, at the end of the day, do we have in context, do we understand that he is so much bigger, so much greater, and yet he chose to interact with you and with me? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it has struck a chord here this morning. We thank you for the kids being in the service, and I pray that they have been able to uh, gather something from your word today as well. We love you. We praise you. Lord, we are so grateful to connect with one another here today. But Lord, let this be a reset for us. Let us put you at your proper place today because you are greater. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.